judgmentalism in the sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Pastor Peter on. So some of you, uh, I know we have some new people here today, but a lot of you know that I grew up in Palisades Park, New Jersey back in the 80s and 90s. And Palisades Park, New Jersey back in the 80s and 90s was not a Korean town that many of you know it to be today. Back in the 80s and 90s, Palisades Park was actually a blue-collar Italian-American town. That's what it was back in the 80s and 90s. And so for me, when my family and I moved out from Queens to Palisades Park, New Jersey, I knew that I had to assimilate myself into the Italian-American culture in order for my peers in school to accept me. And so I tried my best to do that. And one of the things that we did back in the 80s, uh, Italian-Americans dressed a particular way. I don't know if you remember this, especially if you're in your 40s or late 40s. Uh, we wore these slacks called Z Cavariccis. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Z, they were very baggy. They cost like $75, $80 a pair. Couldn't afford it, so I always... I always purchased imitation brands and I wore it, but Z Cavariccis were such where you would wear these baggy pants and you would cuff the bottom of the shoe. You wouldn't wear any socks and then you would wear moccasins. I have a picture of my attempt of looking like an Italian-American. Can we show that picture, Isaac? There I am. That's pretty nice, isn't it? Yeah, I know it is. That was my best attempt. All right, I shopped at Chess King back in the day and that was sort of where I shopped. But I would dress like that everywhere I went, all over town. One day, I was in the deli playing video games with a friend of mine, and the video game that we played was Street Fighter. And we were playing the video game, and in walks an underclassman who I knew was a friend of mine, but not really a close friend, but I didn't even know he was there. It was him and his older brother that came in, and I guess they saw me, and then they left. The next day, John comes up to me at school and he says, you know, I was in the deli the other day, and I saw you and your friend playing Street Fighter. I was with my older brother. And he said, yeah. I said, yeah, I was there. And he said, you know, my older brother saw you, and he wanted to beat you up. I thought, what? Why? Why did he want to beat me up? And he said, well, it's because you looked like a wannabe Korean gang member. I said, what? And I didn't know this, but he said, my older brother is a part of a Korean gang in Queens called KP, Korean Power. And when he saw you, he thought you looked like a poser. I remember when he said that to me, I started to get a little upset. I'm thinking, what? Yeah, I wish you would have tried something on me, right? Like I'm a second degree white belt. I wish you would have tried. <laughs> so you're like, second degree white belt? You know, in Taekwondo, they didn't have degrees at every belt, but Japanese karate that I studied, you had degrees at every belt. So I was a second degree white belt. All right, it took me two years to get that second degree. But anyway, uh, I remember just thinking like, what? And, you know, naturally when you hear something like that, you try to get defensive, but this guy is a gang member. He's a gang member. He's in his 20s. And I know gang members back in those days, they never just went to stores and stuff. They always carried weapons with them. And I remember when he said that, and I looked at him, and I said, I wasn't trying to be a Korean gang member. I wasn't trying to be a Korean gang member. I was just trying to be an Italian-American. <laughs> and I almost got my butt kicked because of that. I thought to myself, what would have happened if... My friend wasn't there because he said, listen, I talked talk to my brother. He said, I told him you're cool. It's okay. Leave. Like, don't bother him. Don't hurt him. If my friend wasn't there with his brother and he just went by himself, he probably would have beat me up that day. He misjudged me for somebody that I was not trying to be. Have you ever been judged like that before? Have you ever been judged in such a way where it actually caused you harm or potentially it caused you harm? or the people that you love 
cause you harm, potentially? I think all of us have been recipients of people judging us in such a way where we feel like they've misjudged us. And some of us have been deeply wounded and hurt by those judgments. But the ironic thing is, is that Jesus knew something that our natural tendency is, though we admit that we don't like to be judged regularly, we certainly actually do not mind judging other people. In fact, some of us, we have, feel like we have full license to just judge other people. And so today as we unpack, and I know we have some new folks here today, so we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount since the beginning of this year, back in January. And in these three chapters, we've been going literally verse by verse and trying to unpack what is Jesus trying to teach us here. The Sermon on the Mount are potent teachings of how you and I can commit ourselves to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we've been learning some deep things, hard things, because as a disciple, we have to sort of raise the bar here. And Jesus is encouraging you and I to raise the bar, particularly when it comes to the practice of judging other people. Now, I am here to tell you that Jesus is not against us judging one another. That's not it. But he wants us to practice it in a way that can edify the body. In order for us to do that, he's saying that we have to participate in something first before we can even begin to judge in a good way. That's what Jesus is saying. And this thing that he's requiring of you and I is not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But if we ever want to get to a place where we feel like we're moving forward in our relationship with God and we're being a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to get this today. Because if you're not going to get it, here's the irony of it all. You're going to be all alone. Nobody's going to want to hang out with you. Nobody's going to want to be in a relationship with you because why would anyone want to be in a relationship with you when you judge them in a way that destroys and hurts them? Jesus is not against us practicing the spiritual discipline of even judging one another. God is our judge. We're created in the image of God. So this is a practice that God does want us to participate in, but it has to be beneficial to the other person as well. So how do we do it? How do we practice judgment in a way that edifies the body rather than destroys it? That's what I want to talk to you about today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 7. We're going to look at the first six verses. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. I'm reading from the NIV translation, all right? Matthew 7, 1 through 6. The very words of Jesus himself. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So God, we come to you. And Lord, I know all of us, we have at one time or another have been judged harshly by someone. It could even be a family member. It could be an in-law. It could be a boss. It could have been a best friend. Lord, this is something that we as Christians don't really like to embrace, but Lord, it's something that you're calling us to do and also to practice in a healthy way. And so God, I pray that today, Lord, that you would allow us to lay down our guards and help us to receive your word. Teach us how we can practice the spiritual practice of judging one another in a way that builds up the body of Christ rather than destroys it. So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. So the focus that you have to realize here when Jesus is talking about judging other people, again, it's not that he's against it, but he's talking about people that you're in relationships with, and that's key. You judging people that you don't have a relationship with doesn't really count because you have no relationships with them. Like, for instance, if you are judging the Kardashians, it's not real judgment because you have no relationship with them. It doesn't matter if you follow them on Instagram. I didn't know that Kim Kardashian has like 250 million followers on Instagram. That's crazy. That's crazy. Just because you follow them, just because you watch their TV show, doesn't mean that you really know them because judging them has no significance in your relationship with them because you don't have one. Jesus' focus here is having relationships with one another. That's the key thing here. And in those relationships that we have, particularly in the church, Jesus knew that there would come a time where his disciples will be in relationships with one another, where they're going to have to practice the spiritual discipline of even judging one another so that they can build each other up rather than destroy one another. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here. So these are for people who you have relationships with. And so think about that right now. Think about the diversity of people that you have a relationship with today. How are you practicing judgment? Is it good or is it oftentimes destroying or hurting the relationship? Right? That's what you got to ask yourself. Why do we judge? Why do we judge? Why should we practice this thing of judging one another that we are in relationships with? Because it was meant to build the body up. Jesus doesn't want you to give up your critical faculties. That's not what he's about. He doesn't want you to pretend issues in the people that you're in relationships with don't exist. You know how you do that sometimes? Like you see, like I grew up, I saw a lot of issues with my father, but I didn't want to bring it up because if I did, I didn't want to get in trouble. And so a lot of times you kind of pretend it doesn't exist, but you can't do that. Then if we're in the body of Christ, if you love one another and you're supposed to be in a relationship with each other, we aren't to give up our critical faculties. That's not what Jesus is about. He wants us to judge in a way where we can build each other up. That's the key thing, all right? That's the key thing. He doesn't want us to give up our critical faculties. We've seen in verse 6, he says something really odd here. Because you would think that Jesus is saying judge lightly, judge uh, like in a very gentle way. But in verse 6, look at what he says. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Interesting. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is saying that you should practice good judgment in determining who are dogs and who are pigs. Yow. That's pretty strong language there, Right? In the first century, dogs were not like the dogs you and I see today that we have. I have a dog. My Kobe's a part of the family. We love him. When I'm not home, he sleeps on my kids' beds. He's on the couch and stuff like that. He's like one of a family member. In the first century, dogs didn't often have owners. They were scavengers. They were scavenged through garbage and find food there. Dogs were, for Jewish people, they considered dogs, they often associated dogs with Gentiles, all right? Pigs were unclean animals to Jewish people back in the first century. They wouldn't eat pigs because pigs were unclean. And so what is Jesus talking about here? How is he saying that you and I are to use our critical faculties in terms of determining who's a dog and who's a pig? We just got to talk about this for a brief moment. What he's talking about are not necessarily the relationships that you were in relationships with, but that he's talking to the disciples and giving them instruction that when you go out and you share the sacred message of the gospel, that's the sacred thing, the pearl is the gospel message, and people reject it explicitly to you, he's saying stop going to them. Because if you continue, they're going to tear you apart. Every one of those disciples were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that that was their fate. 
He was saying, just stop pursuing them. If they've turned away from the gospel, if they've rejected it, if you find people who believed in it and then eventually they walked away from their faith in God, he says, they're dogs, they're pigs, walk away. Don't try to convince them anymore. Don't try to help them to see the ways of Jesus because if you do, it will lead you to your death. That's what he was saying. He wasn't talking about necessarily the people that you and I are in relationships with. We find that uh, the apostle Paul was exercising good judgment to Peter. Remember the time when Peter was eating with the Gentiles and all of a sudden James and his buddies came and what did Peter do? As soon as he saw them, he got up, didn't associate himself with the Gentiles anymore and he went over to sit with the Jewish folks. And Paul saw that. Paul exercised good judgment. Look at what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from the people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like Gentiles, why are you not now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions. Paul was exercising good judgment because what he was doing was that he was confronting Peter, who he was in a relationship with, and saying, this is wrong, Peter. You can't do this. This is affecting your discipleship. That's why we judge, because we care about people's discipleship. Sometimes we care too much about people's feelings more than their discipleship. As Christians, we should involve ourselves and care for other people's relationship with God. It should be a concern for us. We should care about that. And that's exactly what Paul did to Peter. So we are to exercise that. So here's what Jesus is saying when he says, do not judge. He's saying, do not judge harshly. That's what he's saying. Don't judge in a harsh way. You know those people who judge in a harsh way? These are people, when they meet you, when they're in a relationship with you, they're just looking to find bad things about you. And they find enjoyment in finding your, like looking at your failures and your weaknesses. They find a bit of joy, and that's why they do it. It makes them feel better about themselves because they're so insecure as human beings. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying we are not to ever practice judging one another in a harsh way because when you and I judge one another in a harsh way, you know what the root cause of that is? It's bitterness. And when you and I judge each other with a sense of bitterness, nothing good ever comes and we can never fulfill the great commandment, which is what? Love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what a disciple does. Disciples thrive, or at least should thrive, in theory should thrive, in loving one another and loving their neighbor as themselves. We should thrive in that area. And when we judge with a harsh mentality where the root of that judgment is found in our bitterness, can anyone relate to me on this? Because I've been there. I've judged with a sense of deep bitterness towards people, especially those that you love and you care for. When we judge people in that way, nothing good ever comes out of that. In fact, what Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger because if you let the sun go down in your anger, what do you do? You give the devil a foothold. That word foothold in the Greek means grounds. And grounds is legal rights to your soul. And so when you and I judge with a sense of bitterness, what happens is that we give the devil permission, legal rights 
If you're a lawyer, you know this. He has legal rights to our soul. We can't do that. And so we are to never judge with that kind of mentality. And so Jesus is saying that in order to protect ourselves from it, what do we need to do first before we practice good judgment? It's in verse 3. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Look at the contrast between a plank and a sawdust. Many times we focus on the sawdust of other people, issues, the smaller issues, when we're unwilling to focus on the major ones that we struggle with. What Jesus is saying, saying this, you and I should be able to know our own issues. They, they, they're the size of a plank. It shouldn't take us too long to figure what those might be. But for some of us, we really struggle with this. And so in order to practice good judgment, in order to practice good judgment within the body of Christ, Jesus says you've got to take out the plank in your eye. So how do you take out the plank in your eye? That's the big question. How do we take out the plank in our eye today? Here's the first thing we do. First thing is this. We take the plank in our eye out when we grow in self-awareness. You and I have to dedicate ourselves to growing in self-awareness. We have to put ourselves in a position or create a plan where we're constantly surrounding ourselves with people that will help us to grow in self-awareness. You have to dedicate to becoming a student of your life. And so many people, I find that the older we get, the harder this is. We don't want to become a student of our life. We don't want to be more self-aware. The higher you grow in your positions in corporate America, wherever you might be, the more power you have, the less desire we often have to want to be self-aware, and we have to be willing to grow in self-awareness. People who judge with the intentions of hurting other people, people who judge where the foundation of their judgment is found in their bitterness, are people who are completely self-unaware. They just have no idea. They're completely blind to their own issues. I mean, you see it. We all see it, but they don't see it. In fact, I will go even a step further. People who fall into this category is this. Because they're so self-unaware, because they don't even want to focus on their own issues, you know what they do? They find other people with those same issues and they project those issues on them. And they judge them on those issues that they have, that they struggle with, but they're so self-unaware of it. Years ago, I took a team out from our church to South Africa. And we did like a two-month training. We got together every Saturday at a friend's apartment. And we started doing some teamwork building things and other things. And one of the sessions that we had, we actually shared what are our pet peeves. Because when you spend two weeks with a group of people 24-7, sometimes they're going to rub you the wrong way. So we wanted to just share what are some of our pet peeves so that we don't do it, so that we don't hurt each other, we don't fight. So the last thing we want to do is try to resolve conflicts on a mission trip. And so we did that. And so uh, we all started sharing what are some of our pet peeves. Some of them were hilarious. But one guy said this. He said this to a woman. He said this. He said, listen, I've noticed that you come late sometimes to our gatherings. I've noticed sometimes that when we're out doing our team building thing, where you're always kind of like the last person that comes. We have to wait for you. And he said, listen, I would really appreciate it if you did not make us wait when we go to Africa. I don't want to wait for you. She took it pretty offensively. It was kind of, but, you know, umbrella of grace. We're just trying to share what are some of our pet peeves. So we went on this trip to Africa, and I'm not joking, we, she was fine. This guy, we waited from every corner. We were in the van waiting for, like, where is this guy? He was in the bathroom taking his jolly old time. He was hanging out, taking pictures and doing all these things. And we were just waiting for him every time. And in the evenings, we would have debrief moments. 
And we finally sat him down and said, hey, do you realize that you're the one with the issue? That you're the one that's late all the time? And it was like a light bulb went off. He had no idea that he struggled with this, that this was an issue that he had. You see, this was an issue that he had, but yet he wasn't able to deal with it, and he was sort of projecting it on other people. We do that sometimes, and we have to be careful. We have to be careful. We have to set a plan in growing a deeper self-awareness because if you're not aware, you're not taking out the plank in your own eye. I love last Sunday, Pastor Mike and his team, they launched Emotionally Healthy Spirituality in our church. It's an eight-week workshop, and you know what those eight weeks are all about? Taking a dive into growing a deeper self-awareness. Going deeper into something in the iceberg of your soul and trying to figure out what is going on. Why are you feeling certain things? Why are you going through certain sort of emotions, and why are you in the place where you are right now? It's going deeper, taking a journey back into your life, into your family, looking at your lineage, seeing, right? Because no matter what, Jesus might live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your soul. He lives in your bones. And you have to do the work of that. And so you have to figure out a plan. So here are two things that have helped me over the years to become self-aware, and it's been a game changer. The first thing is that's helped me tremendously is the prayer of self-examination. Prayer of self-examination. This is an Ignatius prayer. It's one of our church fathers back a couple thousand years ago. It was a prayer that centered around scripture and silence. The prayer of self-examination is really a biblical thing. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Look at what it says here. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Talking about communion here. Paul is talking about communion. Psalms 139, 23. David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. The prayer of self-examination is key. Processing what you're feeling. So here's what I do. I sort of have my own little twist to it. So I do the prayer of self-examination through silence, through scripture. But what I do is I invite God into my life, into my emotions of what I'm feeling. I call this an emotional inventory. And I always journal it because I, I find that I know some of you don't like to write, especially shorthand. But when you write, you have a, a real great way to laser in on what you're feeling. And so what I do is I start to journal my emotions, and I ask this very important question as I'm journaling some of the things that I'm feeling. What is underneath that? Why am I so angry with my wife? What is underneath that? Why do I still feel like a failure even though I get straight A's? Why do I still feel like a failure when I've been promoted almost every year at my job? What's underneath that, God? Why do I feel like I want to do destructive things to myself? You have to invite God into that and let him into that journey and start to write and be free. It's been one of the greatest spiritual disciplines I do, this prayer of self-examination. And when that happens, you need to share it. Don't keep it bottled up. Don't keep it just between you and God. Start to share it with some close friends and have them share it. I find that the older we get, the harder it is for us to begin to process some of the things that we're feeling. A lot of us, because as we get older, we didn't have the proper emotional faculties to deal with some of the trauma that we endured growing up as children. And so as a survival skill, what we did was we just kind of shoved it deep in our soul. And as a result of that, what happens over time? You've been successful. You've been able to get to where you've been able to get without even processing those emotions. And for a lot of us, we don't want to go there because we're afraid of what's going to happen. And you have no idea that as, you are as you're not able to process what you might be feeling, doing this prayer of self-examination, you're becoming completely self-unaware of things that God wants you to see. 
and you live in bitterness and there are deeper things. And sometimes we judge harshly, but sometimes we resort to addictive patterns of sinful things, drinking, doing drugs, having meaningless sex, maybe doing destructive things to ourselves. It's a dangerous place for us to be. So you have to do the prayer of self-examination. Have some silence. Get some, into some scripture. Ask God to help you, but also start journaling what you're feeling, even those unresolved, those hard emotions, and ask that poignant question, God, what is underneath this? Reveal this to me. And once he does, share it. Because when you share it, there's higher accountability. The second thing that I do that helps me to grow in deeper self-awareness is that I give people permission to speak truth into my life. Not everyone. Everyone doesn't have permission to speak truth into my life, but people that I know that I trust that love me and care for me, they have full permission to speak truth into my life. I have three soulmates. These are three gentlemen that I do life with that know the darkest areas to my humanity. They know every evil thought I have. I have given them full permission to speak truth into my life so that I can be better aware of some things that I might not see. We all have blind spots. Even though you might do the prayer of self-examination, guess what? You could be living your life and people see things about you that you can never see. You gotta give people permission to speak truth into your life. My wife has permission to speak truth into my life. I didn't give it to them, but my kids have permission to speak truth into my life, especially my daughter, Christina, who's the oldest. She has this free permission to always speak truth into my life. Sometimes I don't like it, but I appreciate it at some levels because I know she's trying to help me to grow as a dad, but as a human being, as a person. Justice is very important for her, and she holds me accountable to it almost every single day. I have, I pay counselors to speak truth into my life. I have a few men mentors that I've given permission to speak truth into my life. My staff, I have an executive team that I sit with them and I say this, every once in a while, and if you guys see me doing something stupid, you gotta tell me. I can't just keep doing it over and over and over again. You gotta find people that are willing to love you enough to speak truth into your life so that you can be aware of the things that you are unaware of. That's how you take out the plank in your eye. Because when you do that and you do the prayer of self-examination, when you judge fellow people in this church, other people that you know, it's never going to come with a sense of anger and bitterness. It's going to come with the intentions of loving them enough that you care for their discipleship and you want them to grow. That's the first thing. Take out the plank by growing in self-awareness, all right? Second, we take out the plank in our eye when we judge through the lens of grace. When you and I judge people through the lens of God's grace, not through the lens of our bitterness, that's huge. Why? Because God judges us through the lens of grace. He judges us through the lens of grace through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ, I, I love, I read 1 Corinthians 1 this morning, and Paul says this, you are holy not because of your actions, you are holy because of Jesus Christ. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when God sees you, he sees you as holy, not because of what you've done, what you haven't done, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done. God has put on the lens of grace, and he sees us, and he forgives us. I mean, think about how much we've sinned during this pandemic. Think about the terrible things we did. Think about the things that we said to the people we love so much and care for. Think about just because of our own issues and we didn't know how to deal with it. We, the people that live in our home, what do we do? We just sort of separated ourselves from them, even though we live in the same house. We've become intimate strangers even in our own home. And yet when we go to God and ask God to forgive us, what does he do? He forgives us because God always looks at us through the lens of grace because he sees us through Jesus Christ. 
We are to do the same. When you take out the plank in your eye, you take it out by seeing people and judging them through the lens of grace because guess what? You are broken just as much as I am. When you begin, when you begin to grow in self-awareness of your issues, your junk, the things that you struggle with, what it does is that it will lead you to realize and have a lot more empathy towards other people's brokenness because you realize you're just as broken as they are. So who am I to want to cast a stone and judge them so harshly when I have a lot of issues myself? So who are you struggling right now that you have a relationship with? Is it an in-law? Is it a spouse? Is it an ex? Is it a friend here in this church? Is it somebody maybe at work? Is it an opponent that you feel like you're in competition with at work? Are you judging them with a sense of bitterness? Put on the lens of grace because guess what? You're just as messed up as them. We are all messed up people, and yet God judges us through this lens of grace. And when we look at people, he wants us to do the same as well. It doesn't make what they did to you right. It never does. Because some of you have been really hurt by what they've done to you. It doesn't make what they've done to you right. But what it does at least is that it doesn't allow you to live in bitterness, and you don't give the devil access to your soul so that he has legal grounds. So I just want to read Ephesians 4.26 again. To you. Look at what it says. This is what Paul says about our bitterness. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a lawyer, it means that the devil has legal rights to your soul. And when that happens, nothing good could ever come about it. We live a very dark and lonely, lonely life. I was looking at some uh, Instagram photos, and there was one of Robin Williams, and he said this, and I, I just thought this was a powerful quote. He says, the saddest thing in the world is not to have no one in your life. It's not to struggle with that kind of loneliness. That's not the saddest thing in life. He says the saddest thing in life is to actually have people in your life, and you still feel all alone. That's the saddest thing in life. A lot of us, we have a lot of people in our lives, and yet we feel so alone because so many times... We live under the tyranny of our bitterness, and we judge people that way. And when we do, we only, without us even knowing, because of our own pain, we give the devil a grounds, legal rights to our soul, and we only end up hurting people and not really building them up. No one's perfect. None of us are. We're all broken. And yet the God of, the, of this universe looks at us, even though he's perfect, with a lens of grace. Can you and I begin to start doing that in our own eyes, lives? Can we begin to look at one another through the lens of grace? I have a, a really great assistant. His name is Steve Bang. He's been my assistant now for several years. Can we got a picture of him? Steve's a funny guy. He's, he's great. Um, many of you may not know this, but Steve is actually a pastor now. He got licensed through our denomination. So when you see him, you must call him Pastor Steve. He's in that process now of going through ordination through our denomination. It's going to take a few years. Steve's been my assistant for the past several years. We have a very honest relationship with each other. We have a great relationship. He's, if you ever want to know about NBA stuff, like I, I ask him about his perspective on things about basketball. His knowledge of the game is like on anyone, unlike anyone I've ever met. So we like to even talk about sports. But Steve, what I love about him is that even though he is my assistant, whenever he's struggling with certain things about me, he has no problems talking to me about it. I've given him permission to speak truth into my life. Six weeks ago, he came into my office and he said this to me. He said, Peter, I don't know. This might upset you. I said, well, what is it? Talk to me. 
He said, I want you to know something, is that during this pandemic, I've come to realize something more so than ever at, Met at our staff level. We have about 18, 19 people on our staff. He says, I've learned during this pandemic that at our staff, that there is tremendous male privilege on our staff. I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, I don't, I don't get it. He said, Peter, I look at what's happening. I look at sort of the people on our staff who have really stepped up their game. I mean, they are working more than they even worked pre-pandemic. And he gave me a list of who they are. And uh, he in particular highlighted the women. A lot of our women's staff have stepped up. And he particularly highlighted one person on our staff. And he said, Peter, this person has stepped up. They're working more. They're working harder than anyone else on our staff. And guess what? They're still a part-time employee. And yet you have full-time pastors that are men who are not even doing half of what she's doing, and they're still getting a full-time salary. That's a result of male privilege on our staff. And he says, I am one of the recipients of that. I am benefiting from that. But I want you to know that there's a lot of male privilege on our staff. Wow. It took me a while to let that germinate. And I realized that he was absolutely right. You know, I like to say that I've done a lot of work in this area to make sure that our staff is represented gender-wise. Our elder board, which is the highest love governing body in our church, has four women and one man. I like to say that I've worked really hard in this area, but I was completely oblivious to this. And what Steve was basically saying, but he, because he judged me with a lens of grace, not with, if he judged me with a lens of bitterness, you know what he would have said in my office? He would say, you're a sexist. You are a sexist. But with a lens of grace, he used proper language, but I took it because I know he loves me, that in the end, this pastor of yours still struggles with sexism. And I have to grow. I went to our elder board and I said, we've got to change this. We've got to figure this out. We're talking through it, figuring out a plan. And I just think to myself, I don't know where I would be today if I didn't have the kinds of people in my life that would help me to grow in self-awareness. I don't know where I would be because I know a lot of our women would be very quiet. They might not even say anything. That I don't know where I would be if I didn't have the kinds of people that are willing to speak that kind of truth in love that look at me, they don't judge me with bitterness, but they judge me with the lens of grace. The women on our staff as well. And I'm so grateful for that. And today, you do have a choice today. You have a choice to try to live out your discipleship with God without growing in self-awareness. That's your choice. Without choosing, choosing to judge people with the lens of bitterness. That's one way in how you can live your life. I'm telling you, you live that life, you will be lonely your entire life, no matter how many people are a part of your life. Or you have a choice to say, I'm going to do whatever I can to take out the plank in my eye and I'm going to start to look at people by first looking at myself, by growing in self-awareness, and always judging people through the lens of God's grace. When we do that, Jesus knows that we're going to be disciples where we can not only advance his kingdom, but that we can always be there to support each other the way Paul did with Peter when he confronted him. Take out the plank. It's time you take out the plank. It's been there too long. It's going to be hard because planks aren't light. They're heavy. It's going to require some overhaul, some work. But take out the plank.
take out the planks so that you can experience the height and depth and width of God's love for you by having some people that will love you enough to be so honest and share with you things that you don't even know that you're doing that could potentially hurt other people. That's my hope and my prayer for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'll help us to commit truly to this act of growing in self-awareness. God, I pray that you would help us, God, to invite people into our lives to speak truth, that will love us enough so much that they would be willing to speak truth into our lives so that we can grow and be more like you. That's our goal. That's our goal is to be more like you. Lord, help us as we dedicate ourselves to the prayer of self-examination that you would begin to reveal to us what is underneath some of the real deep, dark things in our lives that often drive us. That so much, so much, so much of our desire for success is driven not by good feelings, but it's driven by our shame because we never feel like we're enough because we feel like maybe we're a mistake. We can never kick that feeling, and so we're addicted to success. So God, would you reveal to us during the times of self-examination that you would speak and help us to be healed. And then as we look at our brothers and sisters, because we've come to the realization of our own brokenness, God, that we can always judge with a sense of grace that you provide for us, that that would be the lens we put on, not the lens of bitterness, not the lens to destroy and hurt, but the lens of building up. So help us to do that as a church as we commit ourselves to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, God. So I thank you for my brothers and sisters, and may they take this journey seriously with you. And I pray that perhaps maybe they would enter into a new season, God, where they would be able to truly live out the life that you've called us to live, which is to live in community, in intimacy with one another, so that we can grow and be more like you. Thank you for Metro Community Church. Please be with us and help us, God, to continue to move forward as we are doing life together as a church. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's some next steps that I'd love for you to take. If you have your communication cards, they'll be on your app or they'll be up there on the screen. Because, guys, it's just not about listening to God's word, but it's about actually taking some practical next steps in, uh, in doing something. So first is this. If you've never committed your life to Jesus and you want to do that today for the very first time, just click on the box. You've done that. We'll get back to you on that. Second, I'm going to journal my emotions with God by asking the question, what is underneath that? You're going to do that this week. Just you and God. Nobody has to know at this point. Just say, what's underneath that? Why do I feel the way I feel? Start doing that. Third, I will have my spouse, my close friend, my children, or mentors speak truth into my life this week. Give them a call and say, hey, can I just ask you, can you just give me some feedback about myself? What are some areas that you've noticed that maybe I'm not aware of? Do the best thing you do this week, all right? Fourth, and I'm not just doing this because there are politicians sitting here in the front. Tuesday is a very big day for our country. We have to vote. June 8th, I want to encourage you that if, I hope you're all registered to vote, but take this seriously. Vote in the primaries. Go to the polls. You guys know how important that is, and especially how important that is even here in Englewood. So I want to encourage you to make sure you go to the polls this week and vote, all right, and vote. Uh, five, please send me information on how I can be an essay tutor for someone at East Jersey State Prison. So you may not know, but we do prison ministry at East Jersey State Prison, and we've gotten to know uh, the congregation there, and there's somebody that needs some help with essay writing. It'll all be done through email. If you're great at English and you're good at doing this stuff, why not help somebody right now that are trying to, trying to get a degree? 
in essay writing. If you're interested, check that off. We'll make sure you get connected to the person so you can get connected to that person who needs that help, all right? And then number six, we're still doing uh, in-person registration, okay? You can't just come here, but we're doing in-person registration. Uh, we'll tell you next week sort of our plan to where we're going to get rid of it. So anyone can just come on a Sunday. But for now, please, if you're interested, come register next Sunday. You can start today and a registration ends on Thursday.